Hi, guys, and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. I am joined by my, I'm running out of descriptors, but fabulous co-host, Amy Hollenkamp, RD, is here with me to talk all about low stomach acid. Ho, ho, ho. This is going to be a good one, I think. Um, Amy, care to start us off in some way? Oh, but first, sorry to cut you off. We are trying to record this on a different platform than we normally use. So if you're watching us on YouTube and it looks particularly squirrely or grainy or weird, apologies if it looks totally atrocious. We're going to go back to our other platform next time, but I wanted to give this one a go. So without further ado, Amy, care to kick us off? Yeah. So low stomach acid's a, a fun topic in general, just because I tend to see it focused on. I definitely think people talk about low stomach acid but a lot of times they're not necessarily diving deep enough. Uh, mm. From my standpoint, they might be doing some strategies to help increase stomach acid. But a lot of times they're missing some of the key strategies to boost stomach acid and to yeah. stabilize stomach acid. So I think that's like my main frustration and, and a big point I want to make in this podcast is just, you know, supporting stomach acid is great and can be helpful. But really digging deeper as to why your stomach acid might be low, I think's probably the most important question. So not just stopping at like, let's supplement with HCL or take some bitters or things that might help with stomach acids. Mm. Those can be great, but it shouldn't just stop there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of my frustrations with it too, is I feel like the integrative community and like the, um, you know, nutrition community oftentimes doesn't go deep enough. And it, mm-hmm. again, it's just like, oh, low stomach acid, bada bing, bada boom. Take your pill, you're good to go right. off, off into the rainbow, you know, living your normal dysfunctional life, off you go. And then my other frustration is this is, it's almost like it's talked about, dare I say too much in the integrative space, <laughs> or it's overemphasized sometimes in the integrative space, and that it is completely, utterly ignored in the conventional space, right? right. So like- you go to a conventional GI, if you ask about low stomach acid, they will probably tell you that's not a thing or, you know, that you're not going to have it unless you're like 80 years old. And then you go to an integrative doctor or a nutritionist or a chiropractor or a naturopath. And pretty much 99% of those people are going to tell you that you do have low stomach acid. So it's like, well, which, which side is correct? And again, we said this in so many podcasts already, you and I, I feel like, are forever in the middle zone of, hey, guys, like, let's try to think critically here and, right, right. and take it on a case-by-case basis. No, not everybody has candida. No, not everybody has low stomach acid. But it can be a pretty big part of somebody's healing journey. Oh, I totally agree. And it's always funny to me thinking of us in the middle because I feel like, I don't know, we might upset some functional medicine people and also upset the conventional medicine people. But I think, again, like it it definitely is trying to figure out what's what could be affecting the stomach and what could be driving the the lower acid to begin with. I think so key to to hone in on. Mm -hmm. And you're totally right. The the conventional side of things only sees high acid as a problem unless you are like in your 80s. They might mention it. But even at that, they 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 probably won't. Um, So, yeah, in I would say 
most of the people I've worked with have tried some sort of like stomach supportive thing. I don't know if that's kind of the same with you. Most people have maybe tried HCL or tried like some bitters or tried some apple cider vinegar or something to kind Mm -hmm. of rev up stomach acid in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you find that most people are trying for low stomach acid just kind of out the gate? Is that similar to what you're seeing? Yeah, I was. I think a pretty fair whack of people that I've worked with have tried something. I would say that a lot of people have dabbled, but they maybe right. haven't gone about it in quite the way I would have. Yeah, um, I do see a fair number of people who have tried the apple cider vinegar with meals. And for those of you who are not aware, the idea being is that vinegar is not only acidic, but it's also a high histamine food or drink, food, liquid, yeah. liquid. So either... Whether we're going with the theory that the acidity of the vinegar itself is changing the pH of the stomach, which personally I don't really buy because like right. it's, it's a drop in the bucket compared to stomach acid. Or if we're saying, oh, if you consume that high histamine vinegar, then that re- that turns on that system and you get more HCL production because of that. Either way, the idea is that if you take like a shot or a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar before your meal, that that stimulates stomach acid production or it acidifies the stomach. So that's kind of the general premises. Um, What's nice is that it's really cheap and it's widely available and it's usually reasonably well tolerated by most people unless you have some blatant histamine intolerance issue. Um, I don't know if I've seen it be tremendously, tremendously helpful for a lot of people, but I find that a lot of people have tried it. Um, now, let me ask you this, because I've, I've observed something and I want to know if you've observed the same. There are two ways to test for low stomach acid. I'm using quotes because it's never that clear, but uh, there's two ways to test for low stomach acid that are talked about in the integrative space and in the forums. I'm curious which one you've seen people do more on their own. Have you seen people do the baking soda test where they mix the baking soda and water, drink it down and wait and time how long it takes them to burp? Or have you seen more people do like the ever increasing dose of HCL until they get reflux? What do you see people do on their own? I've seen both. I will say um, the baking soda one, more interestingly enough, I've seen people have really bad reactions to it. I don't know if that's something that you've seen uh, before, but I had two, I've had two clients now who like had horrendous like gut issues after doing the challenge. Mm. I It wasn't a guided thing. They tried it on yeah. their own um, and I've kind of taken note of that. So I'm a little careful, I would say, with the baking soda one, uh, the baking soda challenge. Um and again, I I could see if that's sort of squelching the stomach acid you do have in some way. Uh, maybe that's driving some of the symptoms that were precipitated in those cases. Um, but I've definitely seen people doing the HCL uh, capsule challenge mm-hmm. as well, um, which I think could be helpful. I, I just wouldn't, I want people to be guided in that. Yeah, um, I agree. Because uh, I just don't want people to think like, okay, I need eight capsules of HCL with each meal now. And it's mm-hmm. like, you're going through a bottle of eight baiting HCL in like five days at that oh, dose. Yeah. So uh, the, that would be kind of my, but I've definitely seen both being done. I don't, do you see one more than not the other? 
Yeah, I don't know if it's like selection bias or, you know, the area of the country I'm in, but I've seen quite a few more people do the baking soda test Hmm. and they'll report back to me and we'll talk about, you know, digestive juices and stomach acid and they'll be like, well, I I did the the baking soda test and it took me five minutes to burp or four minutes to burp or whatever. And I'm like... I, I personally don't think that was a valid test. Yeah. Um, at like, I, I don't, I don't think it's a valid test. Um, yeah, I, I don't. Would... Yeah, I, I agree. And I, again, like I said, I, I've seen some pretty bad reactions um, yeah. to it. So I kind of am leery of that to begin with, to begin yeah. with. Yeah. I don't think I've had anybody who's reported that they reacted poorly to it yet. Mm-hmm. Knock on wood. Uh, again, yeah. I don't really recommend this. So I, I don't know for my own patients either. Just people who have come in and tried it. Yeah. Um, I've had a couple of people who had an adverse reaction to the other test where yeah. people, you know, you start with a low dose of HCL and then you increase progressively. I've had some people respond poorly to that and get reflux. And I think the issue with them was that they started out at too high of a dose and they progressed too quickly because it really the reaction ended up being acid reflux that persisted for you know, a couple of days or a week. Um, so I do think you have to be cautious with that one. You have more yeah. of a chance of really uh, aggravating the stomach locally. But I think that yeah. with the other test, you probably have more of a potential to aggravate the intestines and all of the downstream stuff that relies on stomach acid to right. set it off on the right foot. So they could both be tricky. Um, have you ever in your clinical career seen a GI doctor or talk about low stomach acid or do the Heidelberg test. I know that they do have an actual test for low stomach acid. Where right. You, I think you swallow a pill, right? But well, I don't know of any GI doctors who do the Heidelberg test. I know it's a thing. I've, I just don't know anybody who does I've seen it. it like two times, maybe. Really? Uh, I, I have seen one I think might have been an international mm. client that I was working with. So I don't know if that okay. kind of had anything to do with it either. Mm. Um, I think I had one U.S. client that was had the heidelberg test which is always interesting to me like how do you get that run like was it more of a functional style gi doc or or what but it's not i don't know if it's a hard test to run or not or if it's expensive or just not widely available i don't know all the ins and outs of it yeah Yeah. just kind of not which it's kind of wild to me that like ppis are so overly prescribed that if it is a stomach acid thing why why isn't the heidelberg more common yeah um i smell something fishy <laughs> going on wholeheartedly. um where... i think it would poke holes in the theory that everybody has too much stomach acid right. and it would uh take away from some pharmaceutical right revenue. right exactly so um yeah, I think it's a bummer. It's the same thing a lot of times too uh, with things like SSRIs as well. Like you know, which again, like I don't necessarily know the accurate accuracy of neurotransmitter testing either. Mm-hmm. But like you'd think that they'd at least look at levels bes- bes- before being like, hey, you know, you your serotonin's low, just like out of yeah. the blue. Um, so I think it's one of those situations where it's a bummer that. Stomach acid is never really tested in a totally diagnostic type way. Um, It's a real shame. I wish it wasn't that way. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think um, 
conventional medicine has the ability to test stomach acidity, but they just don't. And again, we don't know, is it terribly expensive to run? Is it poorly covered by insurance? Is it just that like, do GI doctors not know that this test exists? Like, I don't know. But for whatever reason, it's just not a commonly ordered thing. So if you're curious about the idea of low stomach acid or high stomach acid for that matter, you're really left up to this trial and error process, which can be very insightful, maybe a little bit risky. Again, like we both have had patients or clients who have reacted poorly to each of these tests. Um, But, you know, it's like you have to work with what you've got if you can't find somebody who could do the actual test. And you can hypothesize based on your symptoms, too. Right. Um, Now, going... Oh, sorry. You were going to say something. I think, too, sometimes you can hypothesize based on other lab markers as well. Like sometimes mm-hmm. if elastase is low and you have H. pylori or something showing up on your, your lab, yeah. you can kind of assume that stomach acid might be low. Sometimes certain patterns of bacteria on stool tests can mm-hmm. kind of indicate that maybe digestive capacity isn't great. Um yeah. And again, symptoms for sure. I think you kind of want to look at yeah. the the whole context of the the presentation of symptoms, other markers, maybe doing some some self experimentation, but mm-hmm. kind of taking the the whole context of how everything's shaking out before yeah. kind of seeing what's going on. Yeah, and I think that's a really valid point that you can you can kind of. Um... You could deduce that this is more right. likely to be a thing for you based on some testing. So let's actually take a few minutes on that first, and then we can talk about symptoms of low stomach acid, because you can tell quite a lot from symptoms. It's not the be-all, end-all, but you can get an idea of that. And then we'll talk a little bit about how to best try to test for this and you know use of supplements. But for testing, I think you hit the nail on the head that if you're other digestive juices are showing up low. Like if elastase, for example, a pancreatic enzyme, if that's showing up low in stool, then there's a higher likelihood that you're not getting that that signal from the stomach, right? Because normally the stomach is very acidic and it squirts out very acidic juice called chyme. And it's that acidity of the chyme that triggers a reflex in the small intestine that tells the pancreas and the gallbladder, hey man, we need some juice to neutralize this acid. And one of the juices that gets released is elastase. Another one's bile. Um, but it's that that local trigger of that reflex to tell your small bowel, hey, this acidity is going to kill us. You need to release something yeah. else to neutralize that. Um, so I do think that's one potential way. Um, you mentioned microbes. And the idea with that is that if certain microbes, like the two that I always look for are staphylococcus and streptococcus, yeah. And there's other ones that sometimes can pop up, and I'll let you weigh in on that in a sec. But if there's bacteria getting through to presumably the colon and the stool sample that shouldn't have been there in such an abundance, like staph and strep that are local residents on the skin and the throat, then we can kind of deduce that they must have gotten past the acid barrier of the stomach, which means the acid barrier wasn't much of a barrier at all. Yeah. Um, so those are the two biggies I like to look for. Are there any other bacteria that you keep your eye peeled for? Those are the really big ones. And again, I think H. pylori I mentioned, like, oh, yeah, yeah. definitely has the capacity to lower stomach acid. It's the obvious yeah. one. I think strepto and staph, staphylococcus, again, are going to be 
no, I think not something that people look out for as potentially being mm-hmm. low, lower for stomach acid. So I'm I'm glad you brought those up. Um, but yeah, I think I think H. pylori is one, and you usually see. I mean, at least in the stool test I've looked at, you can kind of see, you know, high strepto a little bit elevated H. pylori, low elastase. You can kind of see the pattern, yeah. um, which is kind of what I try to look look out for when it comes to spotting the the low stomach acid stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's there's usually not one clear indication uh, screaming at you, hey, low stomach acid. But right. if you could piece together either, you know, blatantly low or blatantly high or like subclinical or suboptimal test results, you can kind of pick up on this pattern. Um, Yeah, the other one, and I don't know if you've seen this, I know like when I was ordering a lot more GI map stool testing for my stool test of choice, side note, that's not really my favorite anymore. Um, (laughs) But I know in their interpretive guide that they give clinicians and people who order the test, they make a point of saying that enterococcus can also be uh, elevated in situations of low stomach acid. And I think maybe there was others, but I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, I don't know. I know for sure when I was reading about it, it made sense that staph and strep could be elevated as a consequence of low stomach acid. I don't remember the logic with the enterococcus being elevated if it's the same kind of like, you know, maybe it's a resident of the oral cavity or a resident of the skin and you're you're swallowing it and it's getting past the stomach acid barrier, but I would assume it's probably a similar logic. So that's another possibility. Yeah, no, totally. Totally. Um, Okay. What about other tests? So I would say too, um, I've had a couple of patients where we talk about this um, in the context of either iron or protein or a B vitamin, Mm, just knowing that you need stomach acid to break down and absorb those. Um, you know, if I see low protein or low blood urea nitrogen bun or, you know, low albumin or something like that on blood work, my initial question is always, do you ingest enough protein? Like, yeah. are you a vegan or a vegetarian? Or are you somebody who eats meat, but you only eat meat or protein like one meal per day? Like, are you getting adequate intake? And if the person, like, I've had many patients who are like, no, like, I eat a ton of meat. I'm like, okay, well, then that's weird. You yeah. shouldn't have low normal protein on a comprehensive metabolic panel. Like you shouldn't have low normal protein if you're eating meat three times a day. Like that's just, right. that's not in line with what you would expect. So then we deduce, you must not be absorbing it and breaking it down adequately. And then we look to the stomach acid. Yeah. Same thing with, again, you're mentioning iron. Like I definitely see sometimes like I'm looking at someone's intake and it's like they're definitely eating red meat and things that should be pulling their iron up. And it's not like they were vegan or something and just started eating red meat. It's like they've been eating red meat for a while. Um, They eat other sources of iron. Uh, Maybe they've tried iron supplementation, but like nothing's budging their ferritin or their iron levels. Like I definitely think that's oftentimes a big sign as well. Yeah. And you want to make sure that those people, for those of you listening, like you also want to rule out more insidious things like Crohn's or celiac disease or things that will cause blatant malabsorption. Even SIBO can deplete your iron in and of itself. But you definitely, you need stomach acid to break down your iron and absorb it and take it in. So if you if you see a pattern like that where you, honest to goodness, think that you're ingesting enough and you like, you've tried to track your intake with something like chronometer 
or an app and like you you double check and make sure no i'm really truly honestly ingesting enough iron or protein um but your levels don't reflect that then i would start to think more about the stomach acid thing yeah for sure yeah for sure um i think those are the biggies i look out for um other nutrients you know i know that ppi use is associated with deficiencies in calcium and magnesium and B vitamins. So maybe similarly, if you can look at the pattern and you see like low normal calcium, low normal magnesium, you know, low normal B12, like you can kind of piece it all together. I think that they're a little bit less of a dead ringer for this. I think like the iron and the protein um, and some of the stool test markers would tip me off a little bit quicker than that because... I mean, so many people right. are magnesium deficient anyway. Right, right. Um, that's I think, almost too broad now. Yeah, I, I agree. And I only was just going to add, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, um, <clears throat> that magnesium is actually needed to make stomach acid um, oh. as well. It, it's a component. So it's interesting that PPIs deplete that. And then also mm-hmm. coming off the, the PPI, you might not be able to rev up stomach acid as well. Um, the plot so magnesium's begins. right. Magnesium's definitely one that I sort of think needs to be in a good range to have healthy stomach acid levels to begin with, too. Mm. Yep. Yeah, that's a good point. And for that matter, also zinc. Right. Again, for like, sure. If and honestly, this is something. And I'm going to just before I say what I'm going to say, I'm going to make a point of saying this. I'm going to preface with: I was a vegetarian for 11 years, so I know the deep disdain that vegetarians and vegans have when people say, are you eating enough protein or you're going to be deficient in B12 or zinc or iron? Like, I get it that that's like nails on a chalkboard to you if you are a plant-based eater. I was there for 11 years. But what I will say as somebody who has eaten that way and now I do eat meat and I do this for a living, it is genuinely, honest to goodness, very easy to become deficient in B12 zinc and protein and iron on a plant-based diet end of story for sure and you know you can kind of deal with like your inner feelings of what that brings up for you but it's pretty hard to get adequate b12 iron and zinc in particular if you're on a plant-based diet Um, protein you can kind of angle a little bit easier i think but the other nutrients unless you're supplementing with them it's a little dicey um so you know yeah consider consider having a multivitamin that has all of that stuff in it or consider you know once or twice a month having some mollusks or having you know clam chowder i don't know like you do you but think about incorporating that into your diet in some way because i do think you'd be hard pressed to get all of this from plant-based sources more often than not Um, right i i concur I wholeheartedly concur. <laughs> you heard it. The dietitian concurs. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. So now, all right. So that was a kind of glimpse of testing that might tip you off to this being a problem. Now, what about symptoms? Symptoms of low stomach acid. And this, again, this can run the gamut, right? Because it's <laughs> I almost know, like- it really can. If you have IBS, maybe you have low stomach acid. End of story. Right. We're good. <laughs> right. I think, you know, like we've talked about, I think on the last- podcast we did on like acid reflux, gastritis, that sort of stuff. I think with with low stomach acid, it just kicks off digestion. So, I mean, anything downstream could certainly be affected. Yeah. Um, 
I think what I typically see with low stomach acid, I hear a lot of times like immediate bloating or like feeling of early satiety, feeling like you've just sort of ate a bowling ball type uh, type uh, symptoms, a yeah. lot of burping. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear, again, sometimes things like acid reflux uh, too, if you're just kind of not digesting things well. Um, I definitely, uh, I I think the biggest thing that I that I hear and try to keep an eye on is like the burping, sort of the immediacy of the symptoms, mm. um, coming up, especially if it's like the at breakfast that they eat and they just feel awful like the second they eat and yeah. it's just hard for them to get calories in. Sometimes it, the a symptom of like struggling to tolerate things like protein. Mm-hmm. Or higher protein meals yep. can be a big symptom. Um, those would probably be like the the main like really obvious ones that I that I see. What about you? Anything to kind of run with from that? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. In particular, the intolerance or apparent intolerance to higher protein meals, particularly yeah. protein. Um, yeah. Now, and this is the thing, too, is that that can also be a symptom of not adequately chewing your food. And that's a yeah. piece of the low stomach acid thing. Like, you're not going to make stomach acid worth a damn if you're not chewing your freaking food. So we'll come back to that when we get to, like, what you actually do about low stomach acid. But um, I do find, I mean, I've had patients who have told me in their intake forms or in the appointments that they became a vegetarian or they became a vegan because they didn't seem to tolerate animal protein like they would eat chicken or they would eat steak or they would eat you know whatever and they would just get this like like indigestion blah or like you said bully ball i usually say a brick like there's a brick of lead in your stomach just sitting there and not moving and eventually people put two and two together and they're like okay i guess i don't tolerate meat and then they just get rid of meat and it's like well yeah you probably could tolerate it if you actually had the stomach acid to break it down that was the problem yeah. all along. Um, so that's a big dead ringer to me. I tend to see more what I would call indigestion rather than reflux. Although I've definitely had people who have what they think is acid reflux and they have like the burning and the acidity right. feeling. And then it turns out they have low stomach acid, which is totally like mind blowing for a lot of those people because right. they've been told for God knows how many years that they have too much stomach acid and they need right. Nexium and whatever else. So there's, I see that too, but I think more frequently it's this indigestion and this like blah and feeling like the food's not moving or like early satiety and like belching and just kind of like blech feeling after you eat. I see that quite a lot with low stomach acid folk. Um, Oh, another one just to add. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another one just to add to that I'm thinking of is like sometimes nausea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely have seen that too with like lower stomach acid. Again, I feel like it's just kind of that blah feeling like you're describing. Yeah. Nothing's really moving. Things are just kind of sitting there. You don't necessarily feel good after you immediately after eating. Yeah. Sometimes if it's like more SIBO related, it takes a little bit of time to really yeah. experience the symptoms. Whereas the the low stomach acid tends to be more immediate upon eating Agreed. and kind of uh, upper in the GI tract for sure, obviously, yeah. if it's stomach. Yeah, I agree. And I do think the 
the immediate reactions. Like if you eat your first two bites of food and you already are feeling full or you're eating two bites of food and you already feel blah, that's a pretty dead ringer for low stomach acid. Because again, it's like, you know, you chew, hopefully, and you swallow and then the food, it's almost like it has nowhere to go. It just camps yeah. out in the stomach, sloshing around with like a liquid that's not acidic enough. And your poor stomach is trying to process that, but it doesn't have all the tools for the job. So right. um, versus at least theoretically, if you had something like SIBO or dysbiosis in the colon, you would have to wait for that food to get further downstream and actually make it to the small intestine or the colon. So if it's like, you know, a couple bites into the meal or very shortly after the meal, I would tend to think more upper GI. If it's, you know, 30 minutes or an hour or two or three hours after you eat, then I would start thinking more intestine related as far as like the specific symptoms go. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. I feel like there might have been another one that I'm leaving out of my brain, but I'm trying to think of what the other ones were. So we talked about intolerance to meat particular mm-hmm. or high, high protein, um, indigestion, although acid reflux can be assigned to, um, I agree. Nausea, I think is there bloating. Also, I know yeah, a lot of I my agree. patients who have a lot of bloating, the bloating can greatly improve when we start to do the stomach acid kind of work. Um, I think those are the biggies, at least for now. Um, yeah, I would say too, if you're a person who has been on a PPI or, you know, Zantac or some sort of acid suppressor, or if you are a chronic Tom's popper, you know you have low stomach acid because that's precisely what those medications are doing for you. You wouldn't take them otherwise. So you know, without a shadow of a doubt, that you have low stomach acid if you're on one of those medications. Um, so that's another yeah. one as well. For sure. For sure. And in terms of like raising stomach acid there's definitely things that i think are supportive and Mm -hmm. we've sort of mentioned them things like hcl bitters yeah um and we can talk a little bit a little bit about those i'm just i i do want to definitely talk about like what are some of the deeper roots that could be happening with low stomach acid um and you can kind of kick us off there too yeah. Well, we talked about two good ones already. So magnesium deficiency and yeah. zinc deficiency would be two good ones. For sure. Yep. Um, I think the bigger one, we, sh- we should just like put a star next to the vagus nerve episode because I feel like everything we talk about is going to go back <laughs> right. to that. Where, it, ties, it all ties back. Yeah, it all ties back um, because really your stomach doesn't just make stomach acid for shits and giggles. It's not like your stomach is sitting down there and saying, Ooh, I feel like making some HCL right now. Like that doesn't, that's not how it works. Your stomach has to get the signals from somewhere else, namely the brain and the nervous system in order to know what is expected of it and what's needed. Like, Oh, brain says that we're starting to eat now. I'd better do my job and make some acid. But if we are going through life, scarfing our food down, chewing each bite of food twice, eating in the car, scarfing and like eating at irregular sporadic times and like basically not giving our body and our stomach a heads up of what's actually going to happen. Yeah. Your stomach has no no kind of concept of what's expected of it. And I tell my patients sometimes that in my courses I talk about you can almost imagine your stomach as like a desk worker, like in a cubicle. 
you know? And it's got its computer, it's typing away on the computer, and then you, the stomach's boss, or maybe the brain, I don't know, follow the metaphor in whatever way you wish. But you come along one day, Tuesday at 11 o'clock, and you dump like 87 project files on the desk of this poor stomach, and you're like, here, deal with this. In one hour. See ya. Bye. And you peace out. And the stomach is like, my boss is the worst. I had (laughs) no idea that this was going to be demanded of me. I have no support. I had all these other things to do. I'm so overwhelmed. And then what happens in that scenario is the stomach does its job in a haphazard, half-ass way. And then it's half the stuff you just threw into the stomach doesn't get digested properly. And now you're chucking a bunch of weird stuff at the intestines and hoping that they know what to do with it. Instead, if you eat at regular times of the day, like if you always take your lunch, between 12 and 1230. I would like to think that the body has some mechanism where like at, you know, 1130, quarter of 12, 12, out of sheer habit, the stomach in this metaphor is like sitting at his cubicle and it's like, oh, the boss is going to bring me a bunch of projects in 20 minutes. So I'd better like get all this other crap off my desk. I'd better call Suzanne, tell her I need her help. I don't know. Suzanne's the gallbladder. I don't know. But like (laughs) the stomach can start to prepare for that job. And make sure that it's capable, like it has all the highlighters it needs, it has all the sticky notes, it has whatever. And that way, when you, the boss, bring in all these project files, the stomach is like, okay, cool, I can do this. And you can just like, boom, 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 go through and process everything. So I think eating at approximately the same time every day and trying to have a regular eating schedule is really important. And also uh, just like chewing your food and experiencing your damn food. Smell it, see it taste it like think about it don't yeah. scarf it down in two bites and hope for the best like give your your gut brain access time to actually kick in and do its damn yeah. job and then again the the stomach and the metaphorical cubicle is going to have a much better capacity to do the job that you want it to do yeah i love that analogy i think i think meal consistency is something that's not really talked about enough in the gut health space yeah um, there's a lot of talk, you know, about fasting between meals and yep. and those sorts of things with meal patterns. But I think meal consistency can be really huge um, for certain. For, I think for most people that have gut issues, having that consistency in your body being primed almost to to digest at certain times, your body yep. can start to prepare things. Um, I think you're totally right about the vagus nerve and the brain gut access. I mean, digestion and the stomach acid equation isn't any different than other aspects of digestion, too, Mm -hmm. where it's all brain-based, nervous system-based. So if the vagus nerve isn't strong, you're you're not going to have as much stomach acid. And I know, like, too, another kind of thing that makes me cringe thinking about it but like vagotomies you know being done to stop stomach acid like makes me cringe but they were done like if they wanted someone to to not produce stomach acid they used to cut the vagus nerve oh that burns just why not i know why not just cut cut the vagus nerve but it does it will stop stomach acid completely um so i mean it's just such a huge player in so many different areas. And I know we always talk about it and it's just, it might sound like we're beating a dead horse. But, but it's that important. Right. It's that important uh, to have strong vagal tone 
so that you can produce enough acid. Uh, And it can be something too, again, I always like to refer to things as like when in doubt, like just work on the vagus nerve or when in doubt, uh, do these certain things. Yeah. We can get really wrapped up with, you know, some certain supplements and like what protocol I need to be on. But I do think a lot of times when in doubt, working on your vagus and working on your stress response is a good one to focus on versus trying to kind of go down a rabbit hole of finding supplements. Um, Not that supplements aren't helpful. I just think a lot of times we don't focus enough on them and we're kind of searching for the it thing like we've talked about in in other podcasts. So So yeah, this this is a a good one to to highlight uh, the vagus for sure. Yeah. And to be clear too, like for those of you maybe who haven't listened to that episode or we'll kind of recap for a minute. So really, at least in my opinion, you could correct me if you think I'm wrong, but um, (laughs) I think that the vagus nerve, how it's frequently talked about is kind of like people, humans trying to use their analytical left brain to give themselves like a really sciencey reason to give a shit about stress. Right, right. Honestly, like for sure. The temptation is, and I'm sure if we, you know, pulled up stats on Google, people probably Google all day, every day. The more this is talked about, they probably Google best supplements for the vagus nerve, best exercises for the vagus nerve, best essential oil blood for vagus nerve, best whatever for vagus nerve. And it's like you we talk about it in the context of the vagus nerve because you're listening to the IBS Freedom podcast. So the vagus nerve is a way that's going to really resonate and like drive this home for you and help you see the relevance of how stress plays out in the body. But honest to God, like you can almost give up the magic hunt or the the hunt for the magical item that's going to be like curative or perfect for your vagus nerve. Really, a lot of it boils down to habits and stress and sleep. Right. End of story. Right. Like, you don't need a fancy schmancy vagus nerve supplement nine times out of ten. You just need to work on stress and sleep. But, again, you you tell people that, especially if you've been chronically unwell for many, many years, and it just, it it can be almost triggering for them, like, because Mm -hmm. other other doctors have told them, oh, you're fine, you're just stressed, or oh, you're fine, it's just anxiety, or oh, it's just depression, you need, you need a PPI, or, um, you need an SSRI or, oh, you need Xanax or you need what? Or you just need to relax. And it can come off like really assholey when doctors say that. I've had a lot of patients experience that. And then I, I think a lot of people get really defensive about the stress thing because they're like, no, it's not just stress. Like that awful GI doctor told me I was just stressed, but it's not stress. There's something really wrong with me, damn it. It's like, right. Yeah, but also stress is kind of a big freaking deal. But the thing is, like, there's no good test for us to say, oh, just get this one blood test done or this one adrenal test done and you're good to go. It's not that simple to really evaluate. So just know that as we talk about the vagus nerve, the thing you can do in the moment for your vagus nerve is eating meals at approximately the same time every day, chewing your food and experiencing your food. Mindful eating. It, you could Google that yeah. and come up with a bunch of great stuff. So mindful eating and eating at approximately the same time is going to be what you can do in the moment. But the long-term strategy for nurturing your vagus nerve and making sure it's healthy and functioning and the gut-brain axis, the long-term strategy is anything you could do to mitigate stress or deal with stress and making sure that you're sleeping also. Yeah. 
100%. Um, what, I have two main things just to jump off um, mm. uh, what you were just saying. First, I think one other potential thing that people could do prior to eating to help with vagal tone is just like a few minutes of breath work before eating their meals. Mm. Especially um, if you want a, a little bit of a digestive boost. I do think that that can help kind of over time if you're doing some breath work with your meals. It's a good way to to set a habit too. I think if you're stacking habits, it tends to help with consistency. Like if you know you're going to mm. eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner each day, it can be a good way to remind you to do some breath work. Mm. Um, so sometimes I'll have people do like two to five minutes of breath work before their meal, um, yep. two to three times a day in it. I've heard from people that sometimes that just in and of itself can be a digestive booster. Yeah. Um, so I really like that approach. I also think what you're saying is really interesting about the vagal, the vagus nerve being almost like a a more sciencey way for people to manage their stress. And I, I think just in general, as a society, we don't really value stress management, which I know we've talked a ton oh. about. But I think like people probably can wrap their head more around doing vagal exercises because it's a it's a brain nervous system thing it's versus, it's sexy right, it's glamorous right right but it does come down to uh, you know how full is your bucket mm-hmm. and how can you pull things out of your bucket that don't need to be there and how can yeah. you make your bucket bigger like build your tolerance to stress yeah. Um, so it it definitely takes a multi-pronged strategy to, I think, from a stress management standpoint. I like that you are saying doing consistent meals and doing, uh, or in, in working on sleep as being really important because I think sometimes when we think about stress or vagal tone, people aren't, those aren't necessarily the first on the list. Like eating consistent meals, I don't think people really match with managing stress or doing vagal tone yeah. work. Mm-hmm. But I think that if you're not eating at consistent times, it's a very physical stressor. We tend to think of yeah. emotional, mental stressors as being stressful. Um, so I think those are really key to point out just because they sometimes slip under the radar as being a stressor because they're not necessarily mental or emotionally stressful, but they're still yeah. very, they can be very stressful on the body if you're kind of an erratic eater, an erratic sleeper. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you were able to point those, those out. Well, and it's a symptom, right? Like, and I'll use myself, unfortunately, as an example for today. <laughs> so I will divulge <laughs> this. Excellent. I like this. On uh, Remember, guys, we're not perfect. (laughs) So (laughs) on any given day, I usually have a fairly normal routine of like, um, you know, like wake up around 7 or 7.15, get my daughter out the door for preschool. I'm usually in the office by 9-ish. I'm usually doing my first appointment at like 9.30 or 10. Lunch, I have blocked off every day from 12 to 1. And then, you know, we're usually eating dinner by 5.30 or 6.00. For what for today, um, getting back into the swing of things with a new year still, I don't know, like I I texted you and was like, hey, can we start recording a little bit later than planned? I need to make a Costco run. Well, my lunch routine was all shit because of that, because I had put too many things on my plate and I was like, oh, I could squeeze in a Costco run today because like I wasn't valuing my own rest and recovery 
and time or whatever, and we really need a detergent. But, you know, I was like, oh, I can squeeze this in. And that's where you get trapped in these situations where you're eating at weird erratic times and you're scarfing down your food. So what did I do? I did not eat lunch. And then I had like a pseudo lunch in the parking lot of Costco in my car. (laughs) 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 That guacamole never tasted better, though. But, you know, like I, I normally would eat at like noon. But because I was making this random Costco run in the middle of the day, I ate at like quarter of two or something. I was like, and I laughed because I was like, this is going to come up on the podcast at some point. But, you know, it's oftentimes not prioritizing the time and the ability to have a consistent meal is a symptom of the fact that you're putting too much on your plate and you're stressed. Right. So I think that's a piece of it is like, you don't want to approach that piece of information as like, all right, I just need to be ultra strict and make this like a regimented stressful part of my life. It's like, acknowledge (laughs) it for what it is. If you're having a hard time scheduling regular meals, that probably is telling you that you're stressed and overworked and, and overwhelmed. And like, you need to kind of approach that in with a little bit of grace and a little bit of understanding for yourself. Um, But yeah. And I, I think particularly in America, um, people not only don't care about stress, but we, I think, consciously put it on the back burner and have this mentality of like, if you acknowledge stress or if you're working on stress or if you do quote unquote self-care, you know, you're, you're a weakling or you're basic. Um, yeah. so it's really hard to unravel that. I'm still working on it myself for sure. But it, the vagus nerve idea, the one thing that drives me bonkers is that the war experts including ourselves, talk about the vagus nerve, the more of a temptation it is for people to think, oh, okay, so my vagus nerve is just broken. Cool. Yeah. I, need, I need to fix it. I need to figure it out. I need yeah. to I need to conquer the vagus nerve. And it's like that, that overbearing kind of like masculine energy is yeah. not the energy of healing. You don't need to conquer your vagus nerve. You don't need to whip it into shape. You don't need to stimulate it. You don't need to push it or I don't know what other words I could use. You need to have some understanding for what the vagus nerve is going through and try to genuinely get yourself into a rest and digest mode rather than trying to muscle your way and force your way yeah. into a rest and digest mode. Like yeah. that, that's not the same thing. Like you can't force yourself into a meditative state, right? Like <laughs> right. the sheer right. act of forcing means that you will never achieve that meditative stay, state. And you can't force yourself to sleep and like grit your teeth to sleep. And similarly, you can't force yourself to get into rest and digest mode. You really just have to figure out a way to embody that. And it could take a lot of self-exploration and work. Right. Right. I, I think that it's super important to know, like, again, I'm not perfect either. Like I definitely am not hitting consistent mealtimes every single day. Like there's definitely days where there's some flexibility in the day and I'm not yeah. hitting the, the normal dinner time or normal lunchtime or, or whatever. And I think the the way that I would try to frame it is try to focus on progress versus like mm-hmm. perfection. Yeah. Um, I think that that's an, a, a much better way because trying to trying to get to a perfect, consistent meal times every single day and having that pressure can create more stress. So there's there's a level of understanding. There's some flexibility in in these uh, 
these tips and tools that you can use. Um, and I, I think, again, you're, you're so right on with uh, taking the, if you feel like you just are not like an erratic eater and you've always kind of been that way and in, um, finding time to have meals is really challenging. I think that's a really good indicator that like you're the person that needs the lunch breaks. Like you need that time to reset. Right. And I, I've definitely had conversations with many clients who just have never taken a lunch break or like, and I find that a lot of times, like I've seen this multiple times with people that uh, are hairstylists or like that they're kind Mm -hmm. of like on the go all day. And like it's, they schedule, it's like a scheduling type thing where you know it's they're seeing a client after client after client after client yeah um and then they're kind of grabbing like a little handful of nuts or something in between clients and they never have like a time to recharge throughout the day yeah um i think it's really hard if you've been in that sort of uh schedule or structure for as long as you can remember to to take a lunch break but what I have seen from people that have, haven't taken lunch breaks and we've really kind of worked on how are we going to kind of manage some sort of break in your day, some sort of 30-minute break for you to just kind of yeah. rest and recharge, um, it's been really helpful and impactful. Um, and it's not even just about kind of uh, eating and digestion itself. I think there is like a very like recharging thing that happens when you're able to get in a a good lunch break and it helps you become a little bit more productive and and things like that and energized. So, I mean, I can't go out, go about without my lunch breaks. Uh, Again, maybe the schedule gets a little bit wonky, but I I just couldn't imagine like skipping lunch for for a whole day. But people do it. Again, I'm just talking. um, I've definitely in my past... Like early on when I was kind of a teen, I, I definitely like feel like there were meals skipped. Um, and again, I think family members too. It's like always interesting for me to to watch the the meal patterns of my family members. And I'm like, mm. oh, like, oh my gosh, like, how did you go the whole day with like a Coke and uh, nothing else? You know, like there's, there's um, definitely I can kind of see the meal patterns and it does seem to be associated with stress levels yeah. like meal patterns of of yeah. the people that I'm watching there's like a strong association with okay if you're kind of you know going by with having like a coffee through the whole day mm-hmm. and then eating at at night or like a bigger dinner or something like that or really erratically just kind of snacking throughout the day not really taking time to have a meal usually there's a lot of stress uh happening uh, whether it's yeah. kind of work stress life stress um but you're totally right i i think kind of realizing that that's a sign uh that you need some time to to recharge and time to have to establish some meal, some optimize, to optimize your meal patterns, essentially, I think is a really helpful tip. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think for some people, it's a matter of, um, I guess you could use the word priorities or you could use the word boundaries too. Like, I think that there's a lot of people and I'm thinking of one patient, for example, like she's got two kids and she's, you know, carting them here and there all of her tradition and she's you know going to the grocery store and she's running errands and and she's in like mom mode so much and then i I think that that fills up the day right so 
when we talk, it, you know, there's oftentimes these conversations of like, can I have this one granola bar every single day for the rest of my life for breakfast? Because that's easy and it's quick and like, right. I, and she's very much always looking for, you know, okay, could this be my lunch literally every day for the rest of my life? Because it's quick and easy and I, I won't have to think about it. And I'm like, like <sighs> <laughs> I'm trying to yeah. like not overstep my bounds in my profession. Like I'm not a therapist, but I'm also trying to, you know, gently show her like, Maybe you could carve some more time out for yourself to right. have a proper lunch or cook a proper breakfast. And like, I know you feel pulled in a million directions and like you have all these obligations, but also you're worth it. You right. get to I, Oh my that. gosh. I'm so glad you said it. It's like, <sighs> I just always think like you deserve a lunch break. Yeah. Everyone deserves a lunch break. Um that's kind of what that could my be a discussions we'll too. <laughs> I know you deserve a lunch break. That should you definitely be you a deserve, t-shirt. Oh, we could do the like Oprah. Oprah. Oh, yes. you deserve yes. a lunch break. You deserve a lunch break. Oh, I am designing uh, that. Oh, I can't wait. I'm you just guys imagining. Wait until we have a store up and oh. I, I'm also imagining us going to like a crowded area and just yelling at people. You deserve a lunch break. A and you deserve, you a, lunch. deserve a lunch. And break. maybe throwing like some sort of lunch at them. Yeah, but then I I would be tempted to not throw like a granola bar or something. <laughs> I I would want to throw them like you know a plate, yeah, a full yeah a full a lunch. food. We, yeah, and tell them now. Make sure you chew. Right, you're worth it. Right, <laughs> love yourself. Yes, I Aww. like this vision. You um, need to get like a motivational tape going for when people eat. Yes, like a, a experience with with Doctor Nikki as a motivational and, tape. And can we please put this on VHS and make it look like, you know, like all the graphics, could we make it look like it was created in the 1990s? Like the yeah, for sure. For sure. Yes. We can ha- do whatever, however you want. Perfect. Okay. Done. We'll, we'll work on that ASAP. Um, all right. So at the risk of digressing, which we totally did, but it was worth it. Um, okay. Root causes, lab tests, symptoms. Let's pause for one. I, I think the last real big bullet point that we need to cover is supplementing with betaine HCL. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned bitters too. Bitters can be useful. I think we talked about this last time. Like, I'm not a huge fan. I I despise anything bitter. Amy is a weirdo. She likes bitter taste. <laughs> I like bitters. Um, yeah. So you can start. There's a lot of different products. Some of them are sprays. Some of them are liquids. There's even a tablet by Mediherb that some people really like. Um, so you can get a lot of traction out of bitters. Um, a lot of people just go right for the moneymaker and go for the betaine HCL. Yeah. Um, the way that I do have people test for low stomach acid when I bring it up is I will have them slowly increase the dose of betaine HCL until they get to a point where they have reflux. So mm-hmm. I would have you, you know, so for example, if I was telling you, Amy, I would have you start off with one capsule of betaine HCL at breakfast, lunch, dinner. I kind of draw it out a little bit more than most do. Stay at that dose of one capsule per meal for the entire day, unless you get reflux, then you can stop. If nothing happens and you don't feel any different, the next day you take two with breakfast, two with lunch, two with dinner. If nothing happens, you go up and you take three and you keep progressing. I usually cap people like if you don't feel anything by the time you get to like eight pills, whatever, just call it a day. But I do have people play with it a bit up until that point. And that way, the idea is that if, say, if you got up to six capsules 
with no reflux, and then your seventh capsule caused reflux, the idea is that, okay, you must have low stomach acid, and therefore your maintenance dose is going to be the dose that caused reflux minus one. So if seven caused reflux, but six was fine, your maintenance dose becomes six per meal. It's really uh, impractical and unappealing for most people to take that many freaking pills every single day. Um, so ideally, like you, usually I'll have people start off with that exploration just to get an idea of whether or not this is the thing for them. And then once we establish the number, whether it's absurd or if it's a little bit more doable, if it's like two per meal, then we'll say, okay, now our goal is to get you off of that supplementation using these other strategies and these more right. long-term things. And eventually your body is going to start telling you that six is too much. And after right. a couple of weeks or a month or two, you're going to get reflux from your six pill dose, at which case you bump it down to five and then your body will tell you again. And then you bump it down to four and then you keep whittling it down until you no longer need that supplementation. Um, so that's usually how I have people test. And then I also tell people too, the other thing to keep a lookout for is changes in other symptoms. So you could do this test and hyper-focus on the reflux and try to get to that magic number that causes reflux. But if you also notice along the way, like say in this case, Say six was fine, seven caused reflux for you. Well, what if the day that you took four capsules per meal, you noticed your bloating was diminished? That's pretty cool. Yeah. Please take note of that. And then say, say if that change in your bloating did not change between four and seven. All right. Well, I would be inclined then to say, all right, just take four capsules per meal. Because that's where you found the symptomatic benefit. And it's, you know, it's halfway to that maximum dose that you reached to get the reflux anyway. And also now let's work on the other stuff we talked about. So pay attention to other stuff. It might be that your bloating gets better. It might be that you have like champion poops. It might be, you know, that you have less abdominal pain. Like keep your eyes out for other symptoms other than just the presence or absence of acid reflux and see whether or not other things are changing. And then you can base your your long-term supplementation plan off of that. And then, like I said, the long, long game is ultimately getting you off of the supplements by working on the mindful eating and the meal timing and the stress and the vagus nerve and all that crap. Um, right. That's right. usually how I do it. Yeah. I, I, I think similarly. So for me, I tend to like probably do, and I think that I'm not sure again how, you're structuring that like so I tend to like to focus in on like some of the like the chewing the t- mm-hmm. trying to see if symptoms kind of change from some of the basic things mm-hmm. um so kind of I try to focus on the bases like the basic bases that we've talked about here and then yep. I, and then if things aren't necessarily progressing I might start with bitters too mm-hmm. sometimes that's something I do start with so if they again I'm like suspecting they might have lower stomach acid and uh we might start them on bitters we might start them doing like really paying attention to attention to chewing really paying attention to meal patterns like uh really paying attention to stress and vagal tone and those sorts of uh, of things like and then i might kind of see where they're at and at that point i might do some hcl um Mm. So in a similar way, I think we're we're definitely focusing on on very similar things. Um, my only maybe slight difference is I I, I kind of like focusing on the bases a little bit first, but yeah. um, 
Yeah, I think we just reverse the order a little bit. Right, right, exactly. Um, and again, there's not necessarily a, a right or wrong way to do it uh, either. But um, truthfully, yeah, the- I like your way better <laughs> in a sense. And I'll, I'm going to defend my own method <laughs> right, also. Right. But truthfully, deep in my heart of hearts, I prefer your method. Like, I like the idea of going for, like, the cheap or free lifestyle-ish type stuff first. The reason I do what I do is because I do sometimes feel a sense of... Uh, I know what you're uh, going to say. Like, urgency? Well, well, urgency, there's that element of, like, people want to feel better yesterday. Right. And <laughs> it's much quicker gratification if we do the HCL challenge and people learn that about themselves right, right. off the get-go. And it, to them, it feels very sciencey too. Right, right. So there's some appeal. Like, I think it legitimizes this idea to people and it is more instant gratification-y. Um, and, you know, and I, I'm always worried too. Like, I, I'm pretty chill as far as, like, how I work with people. I don't really do giant packages. And I just, I'm like, you know, follow up when you need me. Yeah. <laughs> you, you're in control of this. And I'm here for you whenever I can be. And I know that that also, for all that that's like a good way to do business, I think, it also means that people can have a little bit of like ADHD on me. And like, you know, if something, if they start working with this new practitioner, and then if they don't feel any difference within a month or two, they might be like, ah, she sucked and move on to the next person. Right, right. And I want that person to understand, like, no, I have a pretty good grapple of what's going on with you. It might just take you a while to get there. Right, Um, right. So I want to give them some wins in the beginning. Right. And not, like, lose them as a patient. I want to, like, see this through to fruition. And I just, I think part of me, whether it's accurate or not, part of me worries that if I have them focusing on those things and some of the slower gratification stuff, they're going to get to impatient with me and be like ah whatever she didn't cure me fast enough she didn't fix me fast enough and they're right, gonna leave right and then i'm like no we were so close <laughs> um, right no i i totally understand that i i yeah. think too like if someone came to me and was like and we and again we're suspecting low stomach acid and they were like i really want to try hcl i don't think i'd be like no we have to do it in this order or like if Right. Or if, again, they were like, you know what, I tried HCL in the past and that seemed to help. Like, that was one thing that really helped. Like, again, I'm not going to be like a stickler or anything about like one way or the other. But I I just would say like, um, sometimes again, like the the thing, I just want to make sure that we're not kind of missing bases. So that's, but I totally get your thing first. I, I think cover, getting kind of more instant wins if that's a, a bigger problem yeah. uh, makes sense too i think my method has a little bit more telling to do about like my internal baggage and workings <laughs> things oh that my I, like things that i worry about and cart around all day um but again i like your method i think that that's like the 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 good like freer way to be (laughs) i just need to release some of my baggage of like people are gonna hate me if i don't care them in two months they're gonna leave me so i mean it is hashtag fear of abandonment right it is hard again like i've definitely uh struggled with that too as a practitioner i mean and part of it is that there's i think with the conventional 
our whole lives we've been getting commercials from conventional medicine saying Mm. like you just need this pill um and of course i love how on commercials like the part where they describe the benefits like so loud and then like the the negative like this could cause like super fast and low Mm -hmm. uh low tone um so i think we've been hearing that all our lives and been exposed to so much instant gratification just as a culture so it's really hard i think um to combat that as well so I, i mean i get it it's definitely something that sometimes i definitely am like whoa like we're kind of a couple months in we're sort of at a a plateau do we need to shake things up or how do we make this quicker um so i i definitely understand that (laughs) from what you're saying yeah um yeah but i think uh i think that covered a lot of the bases i i was just i want to wrap up um or at least on my end this is the last thing that comes to mind with a quick little anecdote about a patient of mine. And this is something like, ultimately the choice is yours, right? Like we could have all of this wonderful advice, but ultimately it's your decision how you're gonna implement this. You could be sitting there and, and be like, no nah, man, stress isn't a big deal for me and I wanna eat whatever I want. I'm just gonna take the HCL. That's yeah. you. Dude, like you do you yeah but um we're just telling you like how we would prioritize it and how we would do it and what we've seen be most effective in our clinical practices um but i'll wrap with an anecdote of a patient so she had had SIBO for quite a while i don't remember the stats here but she had had SIBO for a long time and she had done multiple multiple rounds of antimicrobials if i remember correctly she had done, this patient had done rifaximin several times uh, she had done the candy back to AR and BR combo numerous times. Side note, she's like one of two patients I've ever had who actually liked candy back to AR and BR. <laughs> Most of the times that I talk to people who have tried it, they're very like, meh, or yeah. they didn't think it was effective. So side note, um, but she was what she like really liked the candy back and it, they made her feel good and she felt like she was treating it. But every time she came off the antimicrobials, and I'm using kind of air quotes because we never really did a lot of repeat testing to super confirm this, but she felt like the SIBO would come back mm-hmm. and she would have, you know, loose stools, a lot of bloating. And we had gradually chipped away at various other things. Like I think maybe probiotics or prokinetics, um, dietary stuff. Like I forget exactly, but I had this sense from, I think day one of working with her that she had more stress than maybe she always let on um, or maybe that she was consciously willing to accept. And she's got like two kids and they're very active in sports. I mean, pre-COVID, but they were incredibly active in sports and she like worked and she was always just like pulled in a million directions with family and work and life. And, and I got the impression that she had a lot of stress and anxiety, but she wasn't really being honest with herself about a lot of that. And what's kind of funny about this and why I bring this up is that the thing that ultimately helped her tremendously, again, like we had made good, good progress and she was doing quite a lot better, but she wasn't fully cured of her SIBO and it wasn't staying away. But when we had her do the betaine HCL challenge, that was like, oh, the angels sing. (laughs) It was amazing. 
And she reported back to me a few months later and she was like, I have not had an IBS flare. I haven't had loose stools or bloating in three months. It's amazing. And this was a woman like she couldn't go more than a couple of days without a, a little bit of a flare. Yeah. And she's was singing the praises of betaine HCL supplementation. I was like, that's great. And I tried to gradually open the door to the conversation of, well, hey, here's how you could make DIY stomach acid. Let's talk about stress and the fact that you're pulled in a million different directions. And I don't remember exactly how it went, but I think... It was this this follow up appointment was like a year and a half ago, so I don't remember anymore. But I remember getting the distinct impression that if we had a real open heart to heart about it, I think she would have said, "No, I don't want to yeah, deal with the stress right. stuff. I just I want to keep living my my crazy life, being overworked and pulled in a million different directions and on the go go go. I just want to take a pill, right? And that made her happy, and that was her thing. So like she continues to work the job that stresses her out and cart her kids around to 8 million soccer games or whatever. I think like both of her kids were in like two or three different sports at any given time. Like, I mean, she just that she wanted to maintain her life as it was with, you know, six betaine HCL pills. Per right. Right. And it's like, okay. Uh, I don't know. I think I would be right. more open minded to changing your life. But if for whatever reason you're not in a place where you want to do that and that's not appealing to you, it's it's your choice. You can take betaine HCL from now until right. Doomsday. It's fine. But I'm just I just like want to let you know that there is an alternative. And yes. It is harder because it involves a lot of like self work and self discovery yeah. and like priorities and you know, maybe some tough conversations with people you love and like boundaries and like that's tough. But also, it's probably going to have more far-reaching rewards in your life, as opposed to just taking a pill and being done with it. But right, you know, it's it her choice, her life. So, to the best of my knowledge, she's still taking a whole truckload of betaine HCL every day. But she's happy, and she's free of SIBO. So, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, I I think again, like the good thing is that you planted the seed. I think at mm-hmm. some point, like at some point, stress catches up to you. Um, and so uh, the best that you can do as a practitioner is to plant the seeds. And at some point, again, she'll remember, oh my gosh, like, I remember like talking to Nikki and she was saying that I'm stressed and I really needed to work on that. Because I do think, again, like band-aiding things is definitely okay for a period of time. And if if that's kind of your prerogative, then that that's your prerogative. But I do think at some point unfortunately stress does seem to like catch up to you maybe in a different way other than digestively if you're kind of supplementing well and that seems to be working Mm -hmm. digestively maybe it's some other way that stress kind of is coming into play but yeah it's always uh, I, I think um it's always hard I think when you have those uh clients or patients that just like are not seeing what you're seeing um, and maybe they'll probably see it in new time. And so it's, it, I think it's one of those things where you just kind of plant the seed and hopefully they, they revisit it at some other point. Yeah. Yeah. And you just, you know, as a practitioner, I feel like all we could do is hold space for them and. Right. 100%. Hope, hope that they ultimately do 
what makes them feel best and like live their right. best life. And right. You know, right. I don't I don't know every inner working of her life and there could be a good reason why she doesn't want to kind of open up Pandora's box of her life and right. change things around. Right. Um, 100%. But, you know, I'm, I'm not going to cast judgment on it, but for the record, I, I would be more receptive to doing life changes and prioritizing some self-care and prioritizing a little bit more me time if I was in that position. But well, it is what it is. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. Well, my dearest, do we have any other tidbits on the low stomach acid front? I feel like we've covered it all. Yeah, we've, we talked we've run the gamut. We've run the gamut. Yeah, we talked symptoms. We talked testing for low stomach acid, root causes, vagus nerve. Um, I feel like that's about it. Uh, guys, let us know if we left something out. I feel like we covered pretty much all of the bases to the degree that we could. So if there's something else that's really paining your soul that you need to know about low stomach acid, feel free to email us at ibsfreedompod at gmail.com or comment in the YouTube thing, uh, YouTube video down below if you're on YouTube uh, or send us a message at ibs.freedom.podcast on the Instagram. Uh, but that's about a wrap. So as per our usual, this is the point where I ask you to please review our podcast and share it with the world, share it with your friends, because that would help us reach more people and cure the world of IBS and just, yeah, get, get the word out. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and rate us five stars. If you are on a podcasting app, if you're watching us on YouTube, go ahead and click like, subscribe, ring the bell, comment down below, do what you need to do on YouTube to keep up to date on our updates. And we will plan to see you in the next podcast. Amy, twas a pleasure as always, Madeira. Yeah. We will see you in the next episode. Woo! <laughs> Does that bring back flashbacks of your corporate days also? Did the lady exist then? <laughs> <laughs>